I want to start this episode by acknowledging the land of the Gadigal people on which this podcast was recorded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In Australia in 2023, there is something extraordinary happening. We will vote on whether to include a voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our constitution. The Australian constitution doesn't change very often, only eight times in 120 years. But this national moment could mark a profound transformation in how we recognise, respect and value the people who lived and cared for this country first. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Thomas Mayo. Thomas has been a leading figure in the campaign for a voice. A wharfie and a union member, he learned about the power of Indigenous struggle on the docks. He was part of a movement that led the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017, a process of listening and dialogue across Indigenous communities, from remote to urban, across different languages and cultural groups, all around the land. When the Uluru Statement was ignored by political leaders, he helped lead a community conversation, travelling from place to place to share the spirit of that statement and the hope that something new could come to this country. In this chat, Thomas shares insights about the Voice for Parliament story that you may not know yet. For those of you who are from outside of Australia, this episode offers an insight into a national conversation that could change this country forever. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattis, and welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you could also sign up to our magnificent email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So, Thomas, welcome to Changemaker Chats. Thank you, Amanda. It is my pleasure to have you on, partly because we're going to be talking about such an important uh, topic today in relation to some deep resurrecting and changing some deep injustice in where, where I live, which is Australia, and you've been playing such an important role in that. You're going to take us through it. So I'm really honoured to have you on the show. Looking forward to the chat. Cool, cool. So I ask this of all our guests, but just to set the context so, so our listeners can have a sense of you, what kind of change maker are you? What is it that you do that makes change in the world? Well, I, um, I don't really know, to be honest. I just do what I think is right. Um, that's what I've always done. Uh, I think I'm moved by the importance of, you know, I, I'll be completely honest. I, I, I never set out to be a change maker. I haven't, uh, you know, uh, ever thought that I would. I was a quiet young man. Uh, hardly said a thing, but really, uh, again, it, it really is just being moved by knowing that somebody had to do it, and and that's what I've always done. 
Well, it makes me want to get into the next part of our discussion, why you chose to step up and why you've continued to make that choice to step up and fight for what you believe in is so important. So Thomas, like go back as far as, as, as makes sense for you, you know, what in your life experience has, has giving you that energy to like, why have you become the person who steps up? Well, uh, I think to, to really think deeply about it, I think uh, I've always been a person with great empathy for others. Uh, I was um, brought up pretty harshly as well. So I think um, maybe, maybe that's why I moved to act on injustice and when others are being treated poorly. Uh, I I listened to a lot of Bob Marley. Maybe that has something to do with <laughs> I love I that. To a lot of Bob Marley. That's pretty much all I listened to in my teenage years. Well, get up, uh, stand up. You know, you're yeah, doing the things that. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think, uh, and it's always been my nature is to to care about others. I'm fairly generous. I've learnt over the years. Uh, you know. Um, Though when I had to step up, I think I've stepped up in through life, like uh, when uh, playing rugby league, you know, I played rugby league until I was 31, uh, ended up being the captain, even though I was quietly spoken. I guess leading by example was the reason why and um, and having a, a bit of courage and work ethic. And then in um, on the wharves, uh, again, very quiet on the wharves, but uh, the 1998 Patrick's dispute was a real life changer for me. So some of our listeners might not know what you're referring to with the Patrick's uh, maritime dispute. Can you tell us a little about the context and then tell us what it meant for you? Yeah, I should take a step back. When I was 17, I became a wharfie and uh, so a longshore worker or a docker um, or other ways of describing the work that I did. And... Uh, I became a member of the union really quickly. I Why did not, you do that? Why did you join the union? Well, yeah, I wasn't an indoctrinated sort of, you know, my parents weren't uh, unionists, uh, although I know that my dad was a member of the union. My mum was a stay-at-home mother, didn't work while I was growing up. Uh, you know, well, she did, raising us. <laughs> there was probably quite a lot of work. When <laughs> you work in that, you know, weren't activists or anything like that in my family. But I joined because, well, originally because, you know, the old fellas, and it was a closed shop back then. It, it was close to the end of the closed shop era. And to explain closed shop, it was uh, a requirement to be a union member in certain workplaces that were strong with the, the union. But the old fellas, uh, you know, just talked me through what it was. I remember just, um, you know, sitting in the, in the workshop and having them explain to me, uh, that everyone else was in it and it was an important thing. Uh, and I became uh, a, a proud union member because firstly, just seeing how it helped us be safe on the job, how uh, when you know something was short in the pay, it was a way for a quiet fellow to still be able to pursue what I was owed and, and things like that from the employer. Uh, but then learning about the long history of uh, solidarity that the union movement, and, and in particular the, the Wharfies Union in this country, the MUA, Maritime Union of Australia, had had with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so as a Torres Strait Islander, one of the two main Indigenous groups, or what the two Indigenous groups in this country, this, uh, this history was something that really made me take notice of the importance of the union, not just to my own wages and conditions, but to social justice. Um, and so I, I signed up and the 1998 Patrick's dispute, I was 20-year-old by then, so about three years on the wharf, 
And what happened in this country was that the Prime Minister of the time, John Howard, colluded with the um, one of the two major wharf uh, companies, uh, Patrick Stevedores, and the National Farmers Federation. They basically trained, tried to secretly train scabs uh, to to break a, a strike. Eventually, what we learned would eventually be a lockout. Um, and then, in the middle of the night in April 1998, they uh, moved mercenaries, these scabs, onto the wharves. They physically dragged us out of the forklifts and the cranes and uh, off off the jobs, away from our livelihoods, basically. And uh, and then it began a, a months long struggle that uh, was about defending uh, not just our jobs, but it was really about defending our collective voice as workers, you know, um, but as wharfies, um, the ability for us to speak up together with strength. Uh, that was what it was all about. And the Prime Minister, was um, John Howard, his plan was, uh, we learned later, was to go after the rest of the movement, uh, the union movement. Um, once he had silenced what was a, a very strong and respected union um, that controlled a critical part of, you know, an island nation's, uh, you know, logistics chain. Um, once he had silenced us, the plan was to go after other unions and to attack and destroy those voices as well. It's, it was such an extraordinary time. I remember it too because I also was young and I went to those pickets as a, as a, as a student movement member because it was such an outrage and there was such a sense of that this was an attack on everyone, you attack fight you attack one, attack everyone, and there was such a camaraderie. How do you think that that experience of that context and that struggle, how did it change you as a as a person, as an advocate, as as someone who who fights? Well, I think firstly, as you know, a, a good worker, uh, you know those types of things, and and bosses were sort of talking to me about maybe stepping up to be a supervisor. And a manager, it, it cemented well and truly for me that I was going on the workers' side, and I was going to, you know, um, uh, I wasn't. Uh, I was more interested in being a delegate, you know, representing workers, than I was uh, becoming a manager. I think secondly, it taught me about the value of unity. That uh, unity is more than just a word that you say on the streets or in a meeting. Uh, it is something that it requires structure, discipline, the ability to choose your representatives and to hold them to account, you know, uh, the resources behind it to, you know, bring your people together to be able to defend your interests and further your interests. Um, they taught me, uh, it certainly taught me that as well. Taught me about uh, how, uh, you know, employers, uh, you know, in, in chasing profit would stop at nothing really um, to be able to exploit you as a worker. Um, this constant battle between, you know, uh, capital and, and labour. Um, though I, I learnt a lot about that. So when the 1998 Patrick's dispute was over, when we were able to walk back into the gates and reclaim our jobs, I pretty soon stepped up to be a, a union delegate for the first time. So it was the first time I was really speaking up, I think, because the old fellas on the wharf at the time, uh, they all retired, especially all the, the strong union leaders on the wharves in Darwin. And I felt compelled to um, protect what they had 
you know, that they had fought for and won for us, that even, uh, you know, for generations of sacrifice, you know, through strikes and not getting paid and, and all of that struggle, everything that we had was then under threat because um, a whole lot of guys that were twice my age came onto the wharves. They were chosen by the employer. We had no control over who replaced those old union workers and uh, and they thought that the boss was a great bloke and had uh, no idea, even so fresh after the dispute, that, uh, you know, the importance of the union and, and not undermining those conditions. Yeah, wow. That's a, there's a lot of lessons in there that I have absolutely no doubt that have contributed to your work, not just in the union, but connected your, your union work to who you are. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of trial and error. So, you know, at least for a decade of being a delegate uh, and I was on the wall for 16 years, it was hard and lonely when all those new fellas started as a bloke that was, you know, only 21 years old by then, uh, just trying to convince them you know, about sticking together and, and uh, you know, not working unsafely and through enterprise bargaining, you know, so negotiating the, the contract with the company, you know, the, the wages and conditions and trying to stop people from doing silly things that were going to, you know, maybe cost their lives. And, and, uh, and the lessons like uh, organising, uh, you know, taking up a dispute on behalf of your fellow workers and going to the boss and turning around and finding they're not behind you anymore. Yeah. You know, widely and deeply felt issues. I, I didn't get any delegate training um, until I think, uh, you know, after being a delegate for a long time. So I learned a lot just from, you know, the trial and error of things and, and trying to think for myself and stay on my toes and at times walking away and letting the workers learn for themselves about getting done over by the boss and, and coming back and looking for that support. So powerful. And what I, we are going to get to a conversation about how you went from those experiences into the Uluru Statement of the Heart and into this current discussion about a voice to parliament for Indigenous people in Australia. But before we jump into that conversation, I was wondering if you could ground us. I mean, the work that you have done most recently around Uluru, the Uluru Statement of the Heart, around the voice is not the first time that Indigenous people have stood up in this country, right? You know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are the first change makers of Australia and they've been fighting ever since the boats came to, to, to this country. I'm wondering if you could also share a little, you know, some of our audience won't know much, about what has inspired you about the history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander resistance and struggle? Like how, like what and, and what of that struggle has has been really important and foundational for the work that you're doing now? Yeah, the, the, the thing that made me proud to be a wharf in a union member, as I was saying about social justice and support for Indigenous rights, um, it was very close on the wharf, uh, you know, not, not just my own experience of prejudice and those things, but a lot of Indigenous people ourselves don't know the, the real history of our struggle. And so I learned that on the wharf because I worked with guys that had been part of that solidarity. Um, a guy named Brian Manning, he was in his 70s when I started on the wharf, still working he was, and um, he was one of the uh, wharfies that regularly took supplies from Darwin down to the Gurindji people during the Wavefield Walk-Off. And the Wavefield Walk-Off was basically just, it was 200 Aboriginal stock workers in 1966 and domestics and uh, and their families. And they walked off Wavehill Station, which is a station, you know, right out bush, you know, in uh, near Catherine in the Northern Territory. And they walked off in protest for equal wages. 
because they were only being paid in rations and those rations, just some beef bones and some flour and some, some tobacco. Um, I mean, they say work for rations in this country, but really it was slavery because they were working 16-hour days and thereabouts. They uh, were only getting enough sustenance to turn up to work every day. And, uh, you know, if that's all you're getting and you don't have time for recreation or to bury your bed, you're dead with dignity, um, that's slavery. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the Wharfies didn't hesitate to support that struggle. Um, further back the 1940s as well, Wharfies and seafarers, a similar struggle for Pilbara Aboriginal pastoral station workers that went on strike. Wharfies and seafarers refused to export cargoes in solidarity to, to help them get better wages and conditions. And this this history, that's how I learnt about a lot of the history of how we were change makers as Indigenous people, that, uh, you know, like any other human group, we'd stuck together at times, uh, we'd reached a consensus about what we'd do and, and we took action. And, you know, that's just a couple of examples, but also similar to how uh, workers stick together, I learned how... Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, our elders had established a voice for Indigenous people many times, representative bodies. In the 1920s, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, the Aboriginal Advancement League, FACATSI, the NAC and ATSIC. We'd done the same thing, but it was interesting in, in learning about the next stage um, of my life and why it was important to pursue the change that we'll talk about in a moment, Amanda, <laughs> to learn to learn how understanding that unions were always under attack, that so too were Indigenous people when we organised our own sort of union, you know, political representation. And all of those voices, those representative bodies that I mentioned had been silenced by hostile governments, either by intimidation because in this country they could steal our children um, legally, uh, they could exile us from our country, our home, uh, from our families. They could decide who we could marry. Uh, they could direct us to work without pay. All of these things um, intimidated the leaders of whatever representative body we established until it was silenced or, or when it was established by a government that was a little favourable to listening to Indigenous people collectively. Always another government came along and got rid of it because they were hostile to us and um, you know, that was a great lesson on the need for a voice and how um, voices are always try to be, you know, they always are, uh, there's always attempts to silence the people by those in power. And it also makes sense why you'd want to have it in the constitution, i.e. why you well, it's not just knocked out by the next government who comes along, well, because that has been so much of what it's a weakened voice in the past. That makes a lot of yeah, sense. It does. And that's what brings us to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is what I'm working on. And uh, where this uh, Australia is going to a referendum soon uh, to consider the question of if an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice should be enshrined in the constitution. And, uh, and you know, the, a lot of what I talked about wasn't just learnt on the wharf, but it was learnt in a process of 12 regional dialogues that it, that you know, we're covering the entire continent and adjacent islands, but we considered those lessons from the past uh, and then brought it together, you know, uh, looking to our future in, in a, a statement that was truly a consensus position of Indigenous people. Hey, Thomas, can you tell us what it was like at Uluru? You know, t tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Yeah, so Uluru, it's in the heart of the country. They say it's, a, you know, Uluru is a massive rock in the middle of the desert, you know, surrounded by an ocean of ochre. 
uh, a very spiritually powerful place and, and anybody that goes there can feel it. And um, so we were we had delegates elected from the regional dialogues that I mentioned around the country. And we came together at that sacred place and our job as as representatives was to bring the priorities that had been determined in those dialogues together and with the hope of reaching a national, you know, a consensus position on, on what steps we wanted uh, the nation to take with us. And it was a high tension meeting. It was hard um, because we, you know, we came and there was part of the formulation of the dialogues was to ensure that there was a cross-section of views and perspectives and, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, like any human group, have, are not homogenous. We have our different political ideologies even. And, and so it was tough, you know. We were talking about uh, something that was um, important to our lives, to, to our country. It was um, the rule book of the nation, no less, that we were talking about the constitution. And so there was a lot of passionate debate and discussion. Some of our people turned up with banners protesting the whole thing. Um, and, uh, you know, they, their minds were made up before they got there that they uh, did not want anything to do with the Constitution. Um, they had uh, a different set of ideas. There was 270 of us there, and they were around 20. And um, and on the second day of three days there, they walked out. So, you know, you can imagine the, the turmoil, uh, the difficulties, um, and uh, but 250 of us remained and, and heard the Uluru statement read on the final morning. Uh, and you know that was a it was endorsed by standing acclamation, and, and that was like a, a really it was an electric moment. You know, just listening to the words read, you could heard it could have heard a pin drop in the room. It was a massive room, a huge Aboriginal flag on one side of the room, and a huge Torres Strait Islander flag on the other. And we just listened to these words that we'd worked on over the three days being read. And just uh, the moment of, of that acclamation and seeing people crying tears of joy and hope, uh, it was a political feat that I think uh, Australia should celebrate forever and I think the world uh, in itself should take notice of as, as something that is truly profound. So profound. I mean, nothing is perfect in political life, but to have created a consensus amongst those people in the room around a direction forward with so much diversity for those who are not across Australia, like we're talking regional and remote and urban across incredibly different geographies, places, economic status, everything. Like it's, you know, Aboriginal, that beautiful Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population is extremely diverse, but yeah. you actually carved out through dialogue and discussion a pathway forward. There's so much for others to learn from that. Yeah, hundreds of, of different unique languages. I mean, uh, really, Aboriginal culture is similar across the country, but it's also different. And it's one of the things that informs us of the ability of our people to negotiate. Now, we're what scientists say uh, is the longest continuous civilization on the planet, over 60,000 years of connection to this country. And to have those unique languages, so many unique languages and different cultures, it said that we were masters of dispute resolution, really, that we understood reach agreements and settle differences. Um, and that's Makarata. That's part of what the Uluru Statement calls for is the only word for such a process coming together after a struggle. And the disputing parties, um, once a, a resolution is reached and amends are made, uh, they um, are closer than before the dispute is is the way of it. And the nature of consensus itself is never everything that everybody wants. And I think that's something else that just, just shows 
what a great thing the Uluru Statement is and and, uh, and what a great uh, set of uh, words it is. I encourage I can recite it if you like. I know you can. I've heard you recite it many times at events. I'm going to put a link to it in the in the show notes so people people can, can read it. But it's beautifully yeah. short. Like I think that's one of the amazing, remarkable things is that it's not a 16,000-word diatribe. It's it's a concise, powerful, effective statement of, of intent and and purpose. Under five minutes, 430-something words, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Very extraordinary stuff. So tell us then, okay, so just to explain to the audience, right, the Uluru Statement talks, talks about several pathways forward. You know, the people are now sort of in Australia at least are popularly aware of, you know, there's this voice, there's there's treaty and truth. How did they manifest and what did that mean for sort of a, a pathway for action? We're now in, talking about voice. How did we get from the Uluru Statement from the heart to the call for a voice? So the Makarata Commission is to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and treaty is one such type of agreement that's happening here in Australia already in the in the states and the Northern Territory and to uh, for truth telling to the nation, uh, just truth telling process. And uh, the key proposal um, is the voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution. And the reason for it is that we considered how every other voice had been silenced before, as I was saying. And if the constitution is the rule book that even the politicians can't change on their own, then if we enshrine it in the constitution, it puts it out of the reach of hostile governments. And then that gives us some uh, guarantee of consistency, of self-determination over what we say on behalf of our people, the solutions that we have to offer to the unique problems in this country that lead to our life expectancy being almost 10 years less than other Australians um, that, uh, you know, uh, cause huge gaps in life, in health and education and employment. Uh, all of these things, uh, a voice will make a difference. And, and that's the change that we're trying to achieve now. Yeah, yeah. And also, like what you were saying before, in terms of language groups and culture, the voice is also an opportunity for, you know, Australia to get back in touch with the knowledge that's been here for, for forever, in effect, right? That it often overlooks in, you know, whether it's it, it, people, the bushfires in Australia popularise the fact that Indigenous people actually know much more about how to tend to the land than white people do. There's enormous levels of knowledge that also can be like, you know, the idea of voice and, and co-creation and and co-design are about allowing the communities, you know, who, who have been here first to be part of creating what goes on into the future. I think it's so powerful. Yeah, the Uluru Statement is an invitation to the Australian people. And one of the reasons it's so compelling is, is that. And it's an invitation to share our culture and our knowledges, you know, the solutions to the distinct problems today that I mentioned. Um, it's a very generous proposal. Uh, and and when you think about the you know the the injustices that have happened on this in this country where we were once a hundred percent of the population and now are merely three uh, percent many impoverished and uh, you know and and communities uh, very much struggling third world conditions in a first world country it's a generous proposition and I think. One of the reasons that people have bonded so well with it and have supported it is because there's everything to gain from it and nothing to lose, really, for, for all Australians. And in negotiations, 
you always want everybody to feel like they're gaining something, right? For us, we gain a voice, we gain recognition, we gain the means to improve our lives. For Australian people, they will be able to close the gap and that shameful, those shameful statistics that, you know, we, we should have a great desire to change, but also share that over 60,000 years of continuous culture is who we are as Australians in the document that talks about what constitutes us. And I think this uh, this was an important moment in time to make this invitation. And the most important thing is the referendum that will be held very soon. So, Thomas, like this is the moment we've been waiting for. Tell, tell us a little bit about this experience. You've been involved in the Voice to Parliament process. You're now um, one of Australia's leaders in the, in the campaign going forward. Tell us a little bit about how the, the, the voice has come to be and what is going to happen across the rest of this year to hopefully make it happen. Well, one of the reasons we wrote it to the Australian people was not just about generosity, but also understanding that every time we have made a statement or a petition, a, a government has dismissed it, outright dismissed it, ignored it. And so we did something different with the statement. Uh, we wrote it to the Australian people because we wanted them to answer the question. And so the Uluru Statement was dismissed, as predicted, in 2017. Uh, we didn't take no for an answer, though, uh, and my uh, part of uh, the work that I did was I was entrusted with the Uluru Statement canvas. It's a, it's a beautiful, sacred object, 1.6 by 1.8 metres. And so when we endorsed the statement... Uh, we all lined up, 250 of us from around the country. We put our names and signatures around uh, um, a rectangle area. Then afterwards, around the outside of that was painted the song lines or the chukupa, which is like uh, ancient, ancient stories. We were painted around it. And then in the middle of uh, our names and, and that artwork was the statement. The statement was printed. So I was entrusted with that. And I was entrusted with it partly because not because I was anyone particularly special, really, um, but I had the resources to do it because of the backing of the Maritime Union of Australia. There you um, go. <laughs> the, yeah. that, unit, that, that relationship again. <laughs> yeah, and so the, the government uh, dismissed it. We had no campaign resources. Um, some elders went and met with my union and said, well, you know, Thomas is pretty all right, you know, can we please have him to help us out with this? And um, there was no hesitation from my union in that tradition. And off I went uh, on almost uh, an almost two-year journey, taking the, the physical uh, object of the statement to the Australian people and, and ever since. So it's been about six years now. I've hardly had a break. I'm a good worker in that tradition of my people and, um, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to succeeding at this referendum and having a bit of a rest. <laughs> and look, for those who are interested, we'll put this in the in the show notes, but you've written about this in, in the book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, right? These stories of going from town to town across the country, having this conversation, like extending the dialogue. Yeah, working very hard, taking the statement all around the country. I reckon tens of thousands of Australians I've spoken directly with in person. And while I was doing that and, and all the other politics and uh, organising work that comes with trying to create um, a people's movement and the momentum that we have today, uh, I, um, I started to write books as well, which I never thought I'd do as a wharfie and a kid that tended to play up in school a bit, Finding the Heart of the Nation, uh, just shares the voices of some of the wonderful Indigenous people that I met 
on the road with the statement in the first 12 months and five other books since then. We can surprise ourselves. Isn't that cool? When, you know, we had a federal election last year and on election night, the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, got up and committed to the to, to make this voice real. How, what, how did that feel? What, like, what, like, tell me what, what, where were you watching this moment? What, what, like, what was that like for you? Well, I was in a pub in Sydney, actually, and I was literally dancing and jumping around with joy when I heard, you know, Albanese, the new Prime Minister, step up onto the podium to claim victory and uh, say that he um, and his government would support the Uluru Statement in full as his first statement as uh, Prime Minister. It was a really special moment. I think I was most moved. I was moved to joy then. But I was moved to tears when uh, at a moment at uh, Gama, at the Gama Festival, which is on uh, Yolnu land. It's in the northeast of the Northern Territory, Arnhem Land, because I was surrounded by many other Indigenous leaders and, and you know people that were heads of organisations and all this. And listening to the Prime Minister um, announce the draft set of words that would go in the Constitution and seeing the support that it had it was very much a supportive crowd, don't get me wrong. But the reason why it moved me so much was it, there was a lot of people that in the in the five years before that, because it had been five years by that point, had a lot of conversation. I had a lot of conversations with to try and help them to understand it and to move them. And a lot of people sat on the fence and all that. And then there was this, this moment of clarity that, you know, people are coming on board now in greater numbers, you know, and that really moved me because it was such a lonely time at the beginning of this campaign you know as campaigns can be like you're trying to make change you can be look like a bit of a lunatic and uh, and people wonder about you but then as you start to get some critical mass it, the momentum is with you and it carries you and, and that certainly moved me a lot in that time. It reminds me of how you described when you first became a delegate at the Maritime Union of Australia you said that you felt Lonely, a bit lonely and isolated when you were first in that role. So I guess at least you had the sort of recognition of that if struggle changes, things, people come come on board. Like did, did you ever look back to your past when you're in in this sort of fight fight for your people and, and draw strength from your earlier struggle? I think it was, I think writing is a wonderful thing to help you understand yourself and to think things through. And it was when I was writing about myself in finding the heart of the nation, you know, writing about myself for the first time and needing to be a little bit more, I guess, a bit vulnerable in that. It was when I first really sort of thought about what a sort of simple and ordinary story I thought I had. But when you when you patched it all together, people said, you know, you've got a quite a remarkable story and it's interesting and that surprised me. We are eminently interesting. We just need to look closely, hey? <laughs> yeah. And that's what I say to young people, you know, I say to them, you might feel like you're in a dead end job or you're doing something that's not making a difference, but this is all experience and it's all going to patch it together and it'll make something unique and brilliant. So, so Thomas, you have listening to this episode, lots of people who are change makers. Some of them might think of themselves as environmentalists, others for climate change, others are unionists, others are refugee advocates, right? Like some around the world, but lots of people here in Australia. Why do you think it's important for the people listening to do more than just listen? Like what what should they, could they be doing? We've got the voice referendum. It's going to be happening before the end of the year. What can they do to support uh, support making this happen? What, why is it important? 
Well, I think to the first part of your question, and it might be a bit cliche, but yeah, follow your heart. You know, take the opportunities because they they lead to you know they lead to something. You know, believe in justice, believe in change, and that's why people should vote yes. I think I've covered the history of this struggle. I've covered uh, the logic of it. There's, uh, I said, there's everything to gain for Australians and nothing to lose by supporting this. And it's not going to uh, cause chaos in our democracy, as the naysayers, the no campaign are saying. A great majority of eminent constitutional experts have said that this is something that's consistent with our democracy. The Solicitor General, you know, so the head sort of legal person of this country has said that it enhances our democracy. There's every every reason to vote yes. But more than that, change makers that are listening to me right now, get out there and convince others. Use the skills that you've learned, you know, through your experience of doing this work and encourage anyone you can influence to vote yes as well because we can't fail in this Amanda no you know we really cannot fail in this the I mean, I've talked about what a yes vote does for this country and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, all of us as Australians. But what it does if we vote no is that it basically Australians officially saying no to recognising the existence of what truly makes this nation unique, and that's our Indigenous heritage and culture, um, our beautiful art and song and language and all those things, and just dismissing it as if it doesn't exist and, the, and saying no to just the fairness of listening to a people before decisions are made about us. It's a harrowing thought to think of Aboriginal children or teaching any child that we've, we've, we've failed at this, and that's the legacy that we leave them. I think it'll kill our people, you know, to have been dismissed and ignored so officially by this country. We, we just cannot afford to lose. Listen to this, people. We need to, we, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people need our solidarity now. No more bullshit this is a time for action and support, yeah. love and heart. Yeah. And no more better ideas, right? We, I mean, sure, you, you might have an idea, but Indigenous people have said this is the next step. Yeah, you this guys have the, done that work. I don't care if you think that we should have asked for senators or if we should have asked for a treaty first and all this. Indigenous people, the to be recognised, have said this is how we want to be recognised. Yeah. And the very first thing that you always do understanding as a, a trade unionist is you always establish your representative structure before you go and get change. Otherwise, you're just a rabble. And so now's the moment. You know, get behind it and make it happen. Well, as you said, you know, what you learnt from the union early on in the Patrick's dispute is you pick a side, we're with yes, and that we create the structure for delivering it now and forever. Like, Actually, these lessons are true from that dispute as they are true for this dispute. You know, it's been a constant battle for Indigenous people in this country and this is a step to be able to make it, uh, to change it. It will always be struggle. There'll always be a need for change. But in under this context, there'll be a the recognition and a legitimate voice for people at the decision-making table, which has been absent since white people invaded. Correct. Well, Thomas, I wish you the best, but I don't mean that in the sense that I'm not also wishing myself a good old fight around this thing too, right? So solidarity and thank you for, for sharing your struggle. And I hope, listeners, I hope that this conversation is stirring something inside of you and inviting you to think about what can you do to make the voice for parliament real. So thanks, Thomas. Thank you, Amanda. The final words of the Uluru Statement are, we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Let's do it. Let's do it indeed. Thank you so much. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. 
Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. If you want to know more about The Voice, check out our show notes, which are full of links and details to Thomas's books, as well as how you can get involved in the work. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. We're on Twitter at Changemakers99 and I'm on Twitter at Amanda Tats with two Ts. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content from our organising school if you'd like to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.